This is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like the bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens and the circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and the righteous and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from the hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, good morning. Good to be here with you. Uh, my name is Reese. I'm the, the newest pastor here at Sound City. In the last uh, couple of weeks, I've, I've said this, but um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, shake your hand. I'd love to do that. Right after this service, I'll be hanging down here somewhere. Just come up to me, stick your hand out, and we'll exchange names, get to know each other a little bit. Uh, really glad to be here with you this morning, especially if you're a visitor. So thankful you've decided to join us. I'm going to pray one more time just for uh, our time in God's Word, and then we're going to jump in. Lord, thank you for a new day, Lord, a day to come together and recognize collectively that we need something bigger than ourselves uh, to get through this life, to remind ourselves, Lord, that um, our life is not just about our little world, but about something much bigger that you are doing in the world, uh, through us and around us. So thank you for this time that we get to come from all our different walks of life, all our different stages, and sit um, before you and worship you through song and the uh, teaching of your word, through community with one another. God, we pray that you would use this time. Lord, use me uh, to do and communicate uh, to your people what you would have. Pray that uh, you would, Spirit, be at work in doing something in us and in our hearts that we just can't do on our own, that we need you to do. Uh, we love you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, the first half of Meredith and I's first date started off a little bit rocky. And uh, I got permission for this story, in case you're nervous for me, over the next couple of minutes. Uh, but we had just finished a year-long, kind of intensive leadership program that we had done together. And so we, we knew each other quite a bit, but more from a distance. We had interacted one-on-one, -on -one, almost uh, none at all. Uh, but I knew enough about her to know that I wanted to get to know her better. And so 
As soon as the program ended, I, I asked her out. She said yes. And because I knew she liked to hike, I planned a date for us to kind of climb up this hill that overlooked this nice lake, and we packed a lunch. And so we hiked to the top, got everything set up, and the time came where we could finally start to, you know, really talk and focus in. And uh, being the relatively prepared person I am, I came up with a list of questions ahead of time that I tried to commit to memory because there's nothing worse on a first date, right, than long, awkward pauses. Uh, the problem was I was so nervous, though, um, my, my 15 per- perfectly curated questions with their balance of humor, but also intentionality that wasn't too over the top, it really began to slip my mind. I couldn't remember them. Uh, but then to, to make matters worse, I wasn't the only one nervous, evidently Meredith was, because um, when I would ask her the questions, even though she's a much better conversationalist than I am in, in normal life, um, she would only give like one phrase answers. So I would say, hey, this amazing life-changing program that we just did, how was it for you? And she'd be like, it was good. <laughs> and, that, and that was it. You know, I spent like 30 minutes on that question, and all I'm getting is two words. Uh, so yeah, it started off a little bit shaky at first, and it wasn't because we didn't uh, like each other, it was because we had not yet learned how to communicate with one another. I had created the context for us to grow relationally, which is something that we both were looking for, um, but we were missing that dynamic back and forth of dialogue that is really at the center of any meaningful relationship. Now, eventually, thankfully, we changed the scenery. We decided to go to Sonic, which gave us a chance to kind of take a deep breath. And we, we finally started to find that conversational groove. And it ended up being one of the best days of my life. And we're married. It ended up working out in the end. But the turning point of it, uh, point of it all, of the whole date, was learning how to communicate with one another And in many ways, it's the same with us and God. If you've uh, been around the last couple of Sundays, you know that we're in the middle of a series called Draw Near. And the question that we've been asking each week is, how do we draw near to the God who is already drawn near to us in Jesus? In each of the weeks, we're looking at a a spiritual practice that the, the people of God throughout church history have engaged in to cultivate that intimacy with our Savior. And last week, we uh, talked about the practice of creating space for God. And what we said is in our busy and activity-filled world, we have to protect a time and a space where we can be present with the Lord. And while many times that's where intimacy with God begins, that's not where it ends, because we, we don't just create space to sit with the Lord with nothing on our mind. We create space to then listen to the Lord, to fill it up with his uh, voice. And so for the next three weeks, we're, we're looking at the, the three dimensions of communicating with God in that space, and it's really the, the same three as with any other relationship. We want to listen to his voice. We want to reflect and consider what he has said. And then out of that, we want to respond back to him. Just like with any friend or with any spouse, we listen, we reflect, and then we respond. And today, we're looking at the the first part of that back and forth. 
how do we open our ears to listen to God's voice? Or what does that look like? And to, to help us along the way, we're looking at Psalm 19. Psalm 19, it really is one of the classic texts on the word of God, how he communicates to his people. And in it, we're going to see uh, three things I think we need to learn if our ears are going to be tuned in to his voice. We're going to learn how God speaks, why we should listen when he speaks, and then third, how we tune our ears in to hear him clearly when he does speak how he speaks, why we should listen, and how to hear him clearly. So if you have a Bible, go to Psalm 19. If you have a phone even, go to Psalm 19, whatever your device of choice is. And the first thing we're going to see is how God speaks to his people. Uh, The first six verses of Psalm uh, of this Psalm teach us about what you might call the wordless words of God, his wordless words. It starts off in verse one. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day to day, they pour out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. David starts off and he says, hey, the stars and the skies, they're speaking. The mountains and the the streams, they are actually conveying information to us about who God is. And they're doing it not with words, they're doing it uh, wordlessly, nonverbal communication. That's what David's talking about in the first six verses of this psalm. And this is something as as humans we know something about, right? We, We communicate without words all the time. You're at a, a dinner party, maybe, with your spouse, and your spouse is um, um, you know, sharing a story about you, and you can, if you want, very clearly, without words, you can look at them and say, hey, you better land the plane on this tail, or else the car ride home is not going to be all that pleasant. It's wordless words. It's nonverbal communication. And David says here that God is doing the same thing every day through nature, through the material world. And so the question is, of course, what is he saying? What is the message of God? What's he saying through nature? Well, I think the, the best way to, to get at this is to imagine yourself hiking through the most beautiful place that you, you've ever been. Right, so maybe it's um, um, Olympic State Park, which we, we haven't had a chance to go to, or, or Mount Rainier. You're, you're hiking along, you know, close your eyes if you need to, visualize it, and you come around this bend, and you see this amazing stream kind of leaping down this uh, flowered hill. Or you come around a bend, and you say these, this massive range of mountains capped with everlasting snow. And whenever you're beholding that, it makes an impression on you, doesn't it? It doesn't just leave you there. It fills you with something like awe or reverence or uh, wonder. And what's interesting is that those impressions, they come to us not as the result of us thinking about it. It just happens. Now, we don't look up at the night sky and say, science tells me that star is this many millions of light years away from that star. That's a huge distance, and so I should feel awe right now. No, we don't think about it. It just happens. It's a, it's a reflex. And the Bible has an answer for why that happens. And the answer is that nature is not just a random mixture of atoms. It's that that nature is actually art. 
right? It's art. Isn't that how great art works? Or you hear a symphony, or you, you see a painting, you read an amazing work of literature, and things get stirred up in, in you. You're moved to tears. You're, you're filled with joy. It's the same experience. See, the waves and the, and the birds and the, the leaves and the sunsets, they are speaking to us. We are the handiwork. David uses that word. We're the handiwork of a master artist. And the reason we move you like great works of art is because we are art. We are a great work of art. That's what David is saying here. The wordless words, the first six verses of this psalm. Now, this actually has a lot of implications for life and how we think about the world. But let me give us just two for us to consider. And the first is that if this is true, it means that God is maybe much more talkative than we sometimes give him credit for. Because just like any great piece of art tells you something about the artist that crafted it, so does nature have the power to tell us something about the creator that crafted it. Or to say it another way, you can, you can certainly learn something about God on a Sunday morning, right? I hope that that's true. But if this is true, it means that you can also learn something about God on a Saturday when you are hiking through a park or strolling, you know, through a meadow. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he said it like this in a letter to a friend. He said this, this heavenly fruit, he's talking about the natural world here. He says the heavenly fruit is instantly reminiscent of the orchard where it grew, This sweet air whispers of the country from whence it blows. It is a message. Adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far off momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind, it runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. Lewis would encourage us, and I think David would too, the next time we're at Olympic State Park and we walk by a, a great redwood or you hear a, a bird song in the uh, early morning hours to ask the question, what does this tell me about the God who has made it? Right? To, to, to say, well, what is the, the sun from which the sunbeam of, of beauty and artistic expression is flowing? And it won't take long before we find ourselves hearing the voice of God. I am a being of unbelievable power. Right? Who else could make a mountain like this? I'm a God of unbelievable creativity and diversity and um, in order. Who else could make such a, a vast range of creatures and vistas in this world, right? I'm a being of amazing order. Who else could hold all this together by the word of his power? Right? The wordless word is teaching us something. As Paul says in Romans 1, he says, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God is much more talkative than we sometimes give him credit for. We just have to have ears to listen, to listen to the birds, to smell the roses, literally. They have a message. That's the first implication. But then second, if this is true, that God communicates through creation, that it's actually art, it means that Christianity has a much higher view of the material world than any other worldview that I know of. See, secularism would say um, that if you look at the universe, 
it has no objective purpose whatsoever. They would say that whenever you look at a mountain or when you're looking in the eyes of someone that you love because we're a part of nature as well, they would say that um, any kind of emotional experience you have of beauty or, or wonder, it is nothing more than an illusion of evolution. Right? There's no rock bottom meaning to it. There's no actual substance to it. Right? Bertrand Russell, the, the famous philosopher, he believed this. He was a secular man. And here, listen what he says. He says, man must admit that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms in all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Now that's depressing, but that's honest. He's being intellectually consistent with his worldview, right? which you have to respect him for. But when you look at creation, there's no objective value. And I'd say that that is a pretty low view of the natural world, right? Christianity has a much higher view, right? A much a bigger place for the physical world around us. It says that the world, including you and I, are works of art, right? We're the product of artistic vision, and therefore we have value, we have purpose, we have meaning, we are a part of something much bigger, the wordless word of God. That's the first way that we see here that God speaks to us, David says. But then in verse seven, he he pivots from the wordless word and the rest of the psalm is dedicated to the written word of God. So you've got only spoke to us through nature, it would be pretty insufficient because nonverbal communication, it's great for for some things, like telling your spouse that they better end the story before um, they run out of time. But try telling your spouse at that same dinner party, hey, meet me in the car in five minutes and we're gonna drive to Fifth Avenue in Maple and check out that really great new restaurant because this party is really lame and the food isn't that good. Try expressing that through your eyebrow raises or the, the look of your face. There's gonna be plenty of room for miscommunication. It would require spoken word, require you to to write something down. And it is why David says that God gives us his law. The pivot of the whole psalm is verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now the word for, for law here in the Hebrew, it's a word that you all probably know. It's the word Torah. Right? Torah. But the word uh, here, it doesn't just mean the, the first five books of the Bible, but rather David's talking about everything that God has disclosed to us in his written word about himself. Right? The scriptures, the, the Bible. And uh, David would say that while both the written or the, both the wordless and the written word are of high value, the written word of God is indispensable to knowing God to enter into deep relationship with him. You don't see this in the English, but the the first six verses, anytime you see the word God, it is the Hebrew word El, which was the generic uh, word for the divine back in that time. The pagan nations that were around Israel, when they talked about God, they used that word, El. But then in verse seven, anytime you see the word God, David is using the word Yahweh. He changes the word. 
And the point is, if you want to know God in a general sense, you can look at creation, like Paul says, but if you want to know the covenantal God, if you want to know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, if you want to know Yahweh, you need the written word of God, something more than the wordless word. Which leads us to the next question of why we should listen to that word. That's why the the Bible is so important. It's one of the values of our church, grounded in the scriptures. We want to be grounded because that's where God speaks most clearly. But why should we listen when he does speak? There's lots of words in the world, uh, lots of people telling us about life and what we should think. Why listen to these? Well, David gives the answer in the verse we just said, verse 7, which really is the, the center theme of this whole chapter. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It is a perfect word. Now, what's he mean by that word perfect? Well, well, here, it really is a, it's an umbrella term. It's kind of a, a summary of all the words he's about to use to describe the written word of God in the voice, uh, in the verses that follow. And if we have time, we could look at each one and, and talk about what he means when he says that the word is sure, right? It is right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true, it's righteous. He uses all of these words, but perfect is the summary of all of them. And here's what I think David is getting at. The written word of God, David would say, it's like this perfectly reliable map that helps us navigate through life. And that's what it is. It is a map that leads us into flourishing, into life. So you can think about it almost uh, like this. So we live in a material world, and it has laws, right? It has commands. If I wake up in the morning and I decide I really want to be a bird, and I go to my backyard and I climb a tree up and I jump out and soar into the sunset, I'm going to fall to the ground. And depending on how high I am, I'm going to die or I will break a leg. Why? Because I am running, crashing in to the laws of physics, right? Or let's say that I decide I want to eat ice cream for every single meal for the rest of my life because I really do like ice cream. Well, then I'm going to die too eventually. Why? Because I will be crashing into the laws of biology, no matter how much I enjoy ice cream. And just like the world around us has physical realities that we must align ourselves with if we want to flourish, the teaching of the Bible is that the world also is full of spiritual realities. It is full of unseen realities that we must do the same thing with if we want to flourish. Realities about God, Right? Truths about what a human is, about what is right, about what is wrong. And when David says the law of the Lord is perfect, here's what he's saying. It, unlike anything else, shines a light on those realities. And it does it perfectly. See, David found when I listened to the words of God and shaped my life around those words, he found that it did not take his life away. It wasn't restrictive. It wasn't a straitjacket. It increased his life. It set him free to flourish because it perfectly represented God's word, the the contours and the shapes and the lines of the way things are because they're the words of the creator who made the way things are. The law of the Lord is perfect. 
The written word, it's like a map. It helps us navigate the world around us. But then if you keep reading the second part of verse 7, we see that not only does the perfect law help us move through the world well, it also helps us navigate our internal worlds well. Look at verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And then David has this line, reviving the soul. Or as he says it later, rejoicing the heart. Two different ways to say something similar. Reviving the soul. Now, Derek Kidner, who I, I think I quoted last week, he's a great commentator on the Psalms. And when he looks at this verse, he says, the word soul, a, a better translation almost for us in the English would be almost our psyche. The, the soul in, in the Hebrew understanding, it's the, the very center of who you are. It's your core understanding of yourself. It's basically your identity. And when David says that God's word has the ability to revive our souls, he's saying it has the ability to give life and stability to our core us, to our identity. And in a culture like ours, that's an amazing offer. Right? That's a bold claim. Because we live in a time, if you um, don't know, that says you can be whoever you want to be. You can uh, craft any kind of self that you want. You can have any identity that you desire. The sky is the limit. And while that sounds like freedom at first, doesn't it? That's kind of a nice thing. It is actually unbelievably crushing. Right? It is a massive amount of pressure. Last Sunday after church, we went to Mod Pizza, which are everywhere in Washington. There's a Mod Pizza in Dallas, but not nearly as many uh, as there are here, if you haven't been, as I'm sure you have, but it's kind of like the subway of pizzas. You know, you, you walk along and you say exactly what you want. And I came in last Sunday and I was uh, really hungry. I really needed some food, but I was pretty intimidated when I saw the menu. Right? The first stop along the, the conveyor belt is, what sauce did, what, do you want? And it's not two options. It's do you want red sauce? Do you want spicy red sauce? Do you want white sauce? Do you want pesto? Do you want barbecue sauce? Do you want buffalo sauce? And that's just the sauce. And then you got to move and you got to pick the toppings. It was a lot of pressure to get it right. But that is exactly what our culture does. Not just with pizza, but with our souls. Our culture says the most important thing that you can do when you wake up in the morning is be searching through the interweb, the the fog of all of your emotions, all of your desires, all of your preferences to find your one true authentic self. You always have to be deciding who you are. You always got to be naming it. And if you wake up one morning and that core self decides to be something different, you got to adjust and modify your entire life to serve and bow down to that one true self. And it's exhausting None of us know who we are. None of us have a stable soul. We are all at, you know, at the seas, floating on the waves. But David says the written word can end that striving and it can tell you who you are. It can revive your soul. It can rejoice your heart. The scriptures tell us where we came from. They tell us how we are made. They give us insight into why we as humans continue to self-sabotage ourselves left and right, and it gives us an answer for how we can be saved out of that self-sabotage, how we can be rescued. It is all there waiting for us 
to open our ears and listen. There's this uh, great scene in the Lord of the Rings in the two towers where uh, Theoden, the king of Rohan, has been put under a curse by Saruman and he's wasting away. Right? He's, he's languishing. Um, he can't remember who he is and what he's been given to do as the king until Gandalf comes in. Gandalf breaks the curse and as Theoden is beginning to come out of this fog, Gandalf says to him, perhaps you would remember your old strength if your hand grabbed the hilt of your sword once more. And so he hands Theoden the sword, and as he puts his fingers around it, you see the fog begin to lift as he remembers who he is. And David says that's what the scriptures are like. They're like a sword that cuts through all the confusion of our time and reminds us of who we are. If you've been following Jesus for For any length of time, I'm sure you you have an experience like this. I I know I've had this experience where you you come into a Sunday morning worship gathering or you come to the scriptures in a a quiet place, maybe riddled with anxiety or fear or or pain or or maybe deep insecurity, struggling with self-worth, struggling with who you are, and then a verse or a story that maybe you've heard a hundred times that pierces through the fog, it cuts through it to the center of who you are, and you, you hear a word from the Lord. You are my beloved daughter in who I am well pleased. Right? You are my beloved son in who I am well pleased. Your story is in my hand. You have nothing to fear. Whatever it is, right, that's the scripture reviving our souls, and it has the power to do that. So why do we listen to God's word? Why do we ground our lives? Because it's a map. It's a perfect map, a reliable map that helps us navigate the world around us and the world inside of us. It helps us move through the external world and through our internal world and find stability, to find life, to find vibrancy. So last question What does all this look like practically? How do we open our ears, tune them in to the frequency of God's voice? Because he's always speaking, just like right now. Do you know there there are messages passing through your body right now? All you need is a broadband radio to dial it in. So how do we do that with God's voice? Well, there's a lot of things that we could say, right? We could do a whole series on just this one question, but we don't have time for that, so let me just give you three. And these first two, honestly, they're just more um, practical thoughts, not necessarily tied straight into this uh, text, more implied, but I think they're important to say. Three suggestions, and, and here's the first one. If we want to hear God speaking, we have to make time to listen. That sounds obvious. But if we want to hear the voice of God, we have to make regular time, consistent time to listen to what he's saying. And I I really do think it has to be consistent. Um, Coming on a Sunday morning and hearing the scriptures taught is great. 
Right? It's important. It is essential. But if that's the only time we're opening our ear up to his voice, we are robbing ourselves of much of the transformative power of his perfect word. And the reason why is that the Bible, at its core, is not a behavior manual. Right? I hope, hopefully we know that. The Bible, at its core, is not an index of all the things that you should do and all the things that you should avoid doing that we come to with our questions and we pick out the answer and then we go about our life. It certainly has rules in it, but at its core, the Bible is a story, right? It is a narrative. It is an epic tale that happens to be true about who God is and everything that he is doing in the world. It wrestles with all the big questions of life. And the invitation of it is to come time and time and time again and enter into that story until more and more it, become, it begins to become our story, right? where we begin to see ourselves in its pages. The thing is, though, that takes more time than an encyclopedia of answers, right? But it's a story. That's how God's designed it. It's interesting. Researchers have found the number one influence over our uh, capacity for compassion or empathy as humans actually comes, uh, they've studied this, but they say it actually comes from novels, from reading novels. And the reason why it makes sense, uh, if you think about it, a novel, it takes you out of your small little world and it puts you into the shoes of another person so that you can develop uh, another set of eyes. And when they ask the researchers, okay, well, why does that not take place with movies as much? And they say it all comes down to time, the amount of time that you spend with the story. You can see a great movie, but you only spend two hours with it. If you read a long novel by Jane Eyre or something like that, you're in it for weeks. You're in it for months if you um, really take your uh, time through it. And it's the same with God's word. When we make a, a habit of coming to listen, even if it's 10 minutes a day or a few times a week, the more we do that over time, we begin to see our story in his story and it slowly changes us. It gives us this intuitive sense of what God's doing and how to move through the world wisely. It's what David says. He says, the word of God makes the simple wise. It teaches us to move through the landscape of life when there isn't a clear right and wrong. That's what wisdom is in the Bible. What do you do when it's not clear what you should do? It can make you wise. So that's the first thing, consistent space. But then second, uh, to listen well, I think oftentimes we need a guide, a reliable guide to, to help us, especially if it's been a while or we've never really engaged with the scriptures very much. See, the, the Bible, it really is a unique book. It's actually not a book. It is a book of books, right? It is a library of a diverse range of literature written over hundreds of years by people from very different cultures, very different times, and three different languages, and it can be intimidating, right? It intimidates me oftentimes. And so we need guides that can come alongside and and help us tune our ears in to what it is saying. Now, you don't have to be an academic for this book to radically change your life, right? Children can engage it knowing nothing, and it can change them from the bottom. But it is rich enough as a text, and we believe divinely inspired enough to, to, to deserve an effort of learning how to hear it 
a little bit more um, perceptively. And if you're, you're wondering where to start, we actually, uh, on the website, we put a few great resources under the sermon notes um, to get you started, some books, some uh, different uh, websites and resources on the internet. But probably the best way to, to, to find a guide is to enter into a community that regularly opens the scriptures together. So here at uh, Sound City, we have community groups. And as a part of growing together in Christ, there's often discussion about the word of God. What's it saying to us? We have uh, men's and women's discipleship groups, and they often engage different uh, uh, books of the Bible. That's a great place to jump into as well, to, to learn in community what God is saying. But, but find a guide, right? especially if you're uh, newer in your journey with God's word. Very practical, but really, really helpful. So those are the first two things. We need a consistent space. It can be helpful often to have a a reliable guide. But then there's one more thing that we need. And to really see it, um, you have to look at verse 10 and think for a moment with me about how strange this verse is. Because it really is. David says, that the commands of the Lord are sweeter than honey and drippings of the the honeycomb. Now, why do I say that's strange? It would make more sense to me if David said, the promises of the Lord are sweet like honey, right? They're finer than gold. It would make more sense to me if you said, the mercies of the Lord or the grace of the Lord are, are sweet like honey. But that's not what he says. He says, the laws of God. The commands of God are precious. And that's strange if you look at verse 12 and 13, where David says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Now, when David says, who can discern his errors? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer to that question is no one. No one can discern his errors. He says, the most I can do is avoid presumptuous sins, meaning the the obvious sins. Maybe I can avoid those, but the sins I'm unaware of, the hidden sins, even on a good day, I know there are um, transgressions in my life that I'm committing and are uh, hidden from me, not because they're so small or insignificant, but because I'm so used to committing them, I don't even notice them anymore. In other words, David is saying he is not innocent. He doesn't think he's innocent. He knows the law just like the searching son of verse 6. He's comparing the, the two, if you really spend some time. When the law shines like the sun into his heart, it finds cracks. Right? It finds ugly things. And so how can David said your commands that expose the worst parts of me are delicious? Right? Your laws that um, show me where I am a fraud are like honey. Right? They're like gold. How can he say that? Well, the key, I think, is in the last word of this psalm. When David says, God, you are my rock, and then the last word he says is, you are my redeemer. That's the last word in the Hebrew, redeemer. The only way David could listen to the law of God and not be utterly terrified when it exposed to sin is because he believed that God is a redeemer. 
who is able to declare him innocent from his faults. That's what he prays in verse 12. Declare me innocent. And for David, that was a great comfort. It is what he needed. But church, we have something much greater. We have an assurance that's much more than what he had because we know not just that God is a redeemer in a vague sense, we know exactly how God is a redeemer. We know exactly how God has made it possible to pardon David and to pardon us. In John chapter one, we read this verse as a part of our liturgy at the beginning of the service. The gospel writer begins his account of the life of Jesus by saying that the word of God, the perfect word of God has now become embodied. Right? The perfect commands of the Lord has put on flesh and his name was Jesus. And every day of his life, Jesus lived with his ears wide open to the voice of his father. Right? He found delight in the voice of God more than any other voice. Every meditation of his heart was pure before the Lord. Think about his life when Satan tempted him. Jesus responds with scripture, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Throughout his ministry, he was always saying, I don't take one step to the right or to the left unless the father first tells me to do so. Even on the crosses, they are driving nails through his hands and through his feet. He screams out scripture, right? Psalm 22 he was so saturated in God's word, his, his, voice, or his uh, ears were so in tune with the word of his father, so perfectly aligned with his will, that when they stabbed him, scripture came bursting out of him. See, Jesus is the perfect word of God in a person. He's the commands of God embodied. And yet, even though he was innocent, he never transgressed the law, In the end, he is condemned. He lived perfectly submitted to God's voice. The voice that David says, if we align our life with, should lead to life, but for him it led to death. He kept the perfect law. Did it revive his soul? At the end of his life on the cross, his soul was torn apart. Did it bring gladness to his heart on the cross? It crushed his heart. It drove him into the ground. Why? So that we could be declared innocent like David was. That is the only reason why the, the law is not a terrifying thing to us. Jesus was treated as we deserved for all the times we've broken the law, for all the times we've plugged our ears to his voice so that we could have the life that he deserved for always obeying the law, always listening to God's voice. Right in Galatians 3, Paul says, Christ redeemed us, there's that word, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The last thing you and I need to hear God's voice is a redeemer at our side. Every time we open the pages of the written word, right, the perfect word of God embodied, come to die for us. See, when we go to the Bible, if you really 
take this word seriously and open your life up to it, it will shine like the sun into your life and it will expose some ugly things. And if you do not have a redeemer at your side, it will not be sweet as honey to you. It'll be poison to you. It'll come to you as a curse. It'll be a voice of condemnation, right? A voice of accusation. But if you have a redeemer who kept this word perfectly on your behalf, it will become honey. Because with the redeemer at your side, when the scripture says to us, hey, Reese, you're really selfish, You say, I say, Lord, help me put the needs of others above my own like you designed me to be just as Jesus put his needs above my own so that I could become one of his. With the redeemer, when the scripture says it it calls out your greediness, you say, Lord, give me a generous heart. Just like Jesus, who, although he was rich, became poor so that by his poverty, we might become rich. When you have a redeemer, when the scripture calls out your pride, you say, Lord, give me humility like your son who did not grasp for his rights and privileges, but put them aside so that I could be raised up to the right hand of the father. Only if you have the embodied word, the perfect word of God put on flesh at your side, can this word be honey to you? Can it be made delicious? He leads us through life. He shows us the way this world was designed to work in his love. And when we fall off that path, he forgives us. Then our violation of God's law becomes an opportunity to worship and to thank him for how he has pardoned us. So as we wrap up, church, God's voice is always speaking. Right now was is, present tense, through the rivers, through the trees, through the birds, through the mountains, and most perfectly through his written word because he wants a relationship with us. He doesn't just save us and send us on our way. He saves us. He draws near to us so that we can draw near to him. And the question is, do we have ears to listen? Are we opening up ourselves to receive his Word. May we be a people that says yes, right, that consistently pulls away, finds space with the Lord, and then fills that space with his voice. Right, that's our prayer. That's my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for us as a church. So let's even pray now that God would do that in us. Father, we thank you for your wordless word spoken through creation We thank you for the written word that we have in the scriptures. And we thank you most of all for the embodied word. Your son come to this earth to be cursed um, under the law. The curse that we deserve. You took in our place so that we could be pardoned. So that we could be cured doubly as we just sang. Forgiven of our transgressions through your sin. And given the righteousness of Christ. We thank you, God, for his sacrifice. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.